Well, we're in a series called The Miracle of Jesus, and we're studying and looking at all of the different components that come together inside of the story of Jesus, the birth of Jesus Christ. We understand that December 25th is a traditional day that we celebrate the birth of Jesus. We also understand that it wasn't his actual birthday. It's a traditional day, but as we learned last week, it's connected into another very specific actual day that scholars believe that December 25th is when the magi or the wise men actually showed up to dedicate baby Jesus or toddler Jesus at that time. He would have been about 18 months old or so and to dedicate him and bring these massive gifts because he was being dedicated as the king of all kings, literally the king of the world, the king of the universe, the greatest king the world had ever known. And these magi who were part of the company of magi that Daniel had trained 700 years before Jesus, this group of magi had literally been in existence all the way back to Egypt. These were the wise men or the magicians that when Moses showed up and God gave him certain things to show the power of God, like put his hand in his cloak, pull it out, it has leprosy, put it back in, it's now it's, and pull it out, it's now it's healed. Take his wooden staff, throw it on the ground, it turns into a snake. When they first turned uh, the, the water to blood, all of these magi were able to replicate some of the beginning miracles that Moses was doing, but God kept upping the ante and showing his power and his supremacy over the gods of Egypt. Well, these same magi, they were the kind of the king makers, and they translated all three different cultures through the Persian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, all of the, uh, the uh, Middle East, and also down into Africa. And these magi were powerful, powerful people who had been trained by Daniel through four different kings uh, through the uh, Babylonian and the Persian Empire. And they're on the scene here at the Christmas time, but they're there to dedicate Jesus. Last week, we learned that the exact same time that they were dedicating the baby Jesus or the young child Jesus as king was during the Jewish festival of Hanukkah, which is a celebration of dedicating the temple of God. And, and so it's a beautiful connection together how Jesus now, when Jesus said, if I destroy this temple, I'll rebuild it in three days. Jesus was introducing a brand new opportunity inside of the kingdom of God where the temple of God is no longer a giant building. The temple of God is you and me. And Jesus was the first prototype, so to speak, of the new temple that God would come and live in. You understand that Jesus lived his life, the first 30 years of his life, he lived it as fully human. He came from God. He was the son of God, born fully human. No miracles, no supernatural works. None of that began until he was baptized by John the Baptist and was filled with the Holy Spirit. And then he, the Bible says that the fullness of the Godhead dwelt in Jesus in bodily form. So every single drop of the Holy Spirit lived inside of Jesus in one body. That's, I mean, that's, it was unbelievably powerful. We share. None of us have the whole Holy Spirit only in us. We all are partakers, the Bible says, or shareholders of the Holy Spirit. We have a portion of the Holy Spirit, but none of us have all of it all to, us, all to ourselves. And that's why it's so important that we come together as the body of Christ. That's why it's so important that any chance we get, I love technology, I love that we're able to reach people. We have over 40 different states represented in, in, with people and families that are watching Oaks Church here in McKinney, Texas. 40 different states, people are watching internationally. It's wonderful 
that you're with us. Thank you for being a part of our family. If you're in the area, come and be with us. And if you live here, for crying out loud, come and be with us. Why? Because there's something great in you that we need, and there's something great in us that you need. And when we're together, that's why the Bible says to never forsake the gathering together of the believers, because there's something synergistically that happens when we're unified together and we're connected together. It brings out the best in each and every one of us. The greatest things that have happened to me in my life have happened through the relationships that I've made with people in church. This is the greatest gift I've ever been given in my life. I met her at church, serving in ministry, children's ministry and youth ministry and young adult ministry. That's where we built our friendship and our relationship. It's the importance of the body of Christ coming together and being united. It's so important. It's so invaluable. It's precious and priceless. So thank you for being committed and thank you for being with us and being a part. But so many of these different parts of the story of this Christmas story, next week we'll get into the shepherds and the angels and and the manger and the swaddling clothes and what all of that meant and who these actual shepherds were and why God picked them. But today what I want to talk about is Mary and Joseph and some of the things that I've dealt with just in my own personal experience where I'm questioning the story. You ever question the story? You ever doubted parts of the Bible? It's okay. Do you think God is intimidated by your intellect? You think he's intimidated by your questions? He's not. You you should question. You should ask deep questions. You should seek for more answers. In fact, the Bible says this, that it is the glory of God to conceal a matter, and it's the glory of kings to search it out. And you have been called a royal priesthood. You are kings and priests. And the glory for us is to search out the hidden gems that God has hidden all through his creation. It's amazing what God has done in the stars, in the cosmos, in the animal life, in the plant life. It's amazing that all of creation worships God. All of creation was designed. It exists to worship him. And God has hidden himself all through creation for us to discover and find out. God is not intimidated by science. Can I tell you something, God does not follow the science. God is the science. Science, literally, the word science means knowing. It comes from the word gnosis, to know, to seek to know. Science is an experiment. And then there are laws of science that we discover that are unchanging. They're laws. But anything else that changes is a philosophy or a theory. It's different than a law. God is unchanging. God is truth. God is law. God is love. He's the one thing that we can absolutely count on. But we should dive in to know him, to study him, to research him, and to understand truths from the scripture. What I've learned is that anything and everything that happens in the Bible happens for a reason. There's always a reason. God doesn't do anything by accident. You're not an accident. Your relationships weren't accidents. Sometimes things don't work out the way we want. Sometimes things go bad. Anybody ever have anything go bad in their life? I I heard Rick Warren, the guy who wrote The Purpose Driven Life, at the exact same time that his book became a number one bestseller and sold like 40 million books all over the world was the exact same time that his wife was diagnosed with a terminal disease and they battled terminal disease at the exact same time that they had the greatest level of success they'd ever had. And the way he described it was that it's not you have ups and down times, it's like you're on a roller coaster and they all happen at the same time. Have you ever felt like that? Like the good times and the bad times are simultaneous? I think sometimes God does that to keep us sane. Because if it was all, all, all bad, we would just quit. 
right? But there's this little glimmer of hope sometimes that keeps us in the game, that keeps us in there. The exact same time that Jennifer and I were losing our first daughter to brain cancer, God was opening up incredible, every other part of our life was thriving and wonderful. But this most important part was horrific and terrible, but God brought us through. Amen. He can bring you through too. So when I look at this and I ask this question, what was it about Joseph? Why did God pick Joseph? Why did God pick Mary? Because the narrative that I kind of grew up hearing or some of the church traditions that I've gravitated toward or held on to were that they were poor. She's a 15-year-old girl. No offense to any 15-year-old girls, but 15-year-old anybody, what do you know? What do, I mean, that's the most, there's nothing more obnoxious than a teenager except maybe a brand new college graduate that thinks they know something about life because they got this degree and never, hadn't had one job their whole life. Right? There are times in our lives where we go through, where we think we know stuff and we don't know, but what was it? There had to be something special about Mary and it wasn't that she was a virgin because in that culture, almost all 15-year-olds were. It was a normal thing. Anybody that would be a future potential bride would have been a virgin. There were thousands, if not millions, of virgins to pick from. Why her? Why Joseph? The Bible says that he was just a carpenter. There's things in the Bible that have been translated that allude to seeming like he would be a low-level, minimum-wage worker. Anybody else ever got that kind of a vibe? Just the traditions that we, that we hear about and we think about, that they were poor and that they were broke and that they were whatever. My question and what I really deal with is why, when God is picking the two people to do the most important job that has ever been assigned in the history of mankind, why would he pick flunkies? I mean, here's how Jesus taught. Jesus taught like this. See this thing in nature? This truth in nature, this is what the kingdom is like. See this truth in business, this is what the kingdom is like. See this truth in mankind, this is what the kingdom is like. So we as human beings understand, look, I learned back in the early 2000s with that TLC song, what a scrub was. I ain't want no scrub. A scrub is a guy that can't get no love from me. Hanging out the pastor's side of his best friend's ride, trying to holler at me. Come on, if TLC can figure out that you don't want no scrub, why would God pick scrubs? Anybody else have these questions? This is how I read my Bible. I read my Bible asking questions. Why, 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 why? Because it has to have a reason. It has to have a purpose. So why did he pick them? I mean, if it, just, just us, human nature. If you're picking a landscaper, do you pick just any scrub landscaper? Do you look at reviews? Do you find out how, if I'm gonna give this guy a check for $5,000 or $10,000 or whatever I'm gonna give him, how am I sure I'm gonna get this work done? I gotta put a 50% deposit on, how's this gonna, if I'm picking a banker, if I'm picking a finance manager, if I'm picking a trainer at the gym, this little gym I work out, there's a trainer there, I'm kinda watching him. I haven't signed up with him yet, I know how to work out, but maybe he knows something I don't know, he should know something I don't know, but I'm gonna watch him. I mean, if, he, if, if the trainer looks like this, I ain't hiring him. You better be like, looking like Cassius over here, just all jacked up, yoked. I'll hire you to train me for crying out loud. He's looking good right now. You own a barbecue business and you look that good? That doesn't even make sense, see? I got more questions to ask Jesus about. If you were to hire a babysitter for your little knucklehead 
would you just hire any schmo off the street? Probably pretty selective, aren't you? How much more would God be selective picking the people to raise the young man that would become God in the flesh? That his own spirit would fill who would do the most important job on the planet. Wouldn't they have to have some kind of qualification, some kind of reason for why they would be eligible for God to choose them? What I've come to realize looking through scripture is that our God is an extraordinary God who picks extraordinary individuals. All through your Bible, incredible stories, wild stories of amazing heroes, Old Testament and New Testament, heroes of faith who were all flawed, they all had issues, none of them perfect, but all of them had great characteristics, something distinct, something extraordinary, something that set them apart. It doesn't make sense that God would just pick any random carpenter or any random 15-year-old virgin. There has to be something intentional about this story. I want you to look at a couple different verses. Proverbs chapter 22, verse 29. Do you see someone skilled in their work or excellent in their work? They will serve before kings. That's the wisdom of God. Someone that is excellent will serve at the highest levels. How much more someone that God is picking to serve at the highest levels? When God decided in Exodus chapter 35 to build his tabernacle, he gave specific instructions to pick a specific type of craftsman. He names a couple of guys, and this is what he says. And he has been filled, or he has, God has filled him with the spirit of God, with wisdom and understanding, with knowledge and with all kinds of skills to make artistic designs for work in gold and silver and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood and engage in all kinds of artistic crafts. And he has given both him, I don't know how to say this guy's name, son of whoever his name is as well, of the tribe of Dan, the ability to teach others. He has filled them with skill to do all kinds of work as engravers, designers, embroiders, and purple and blue and scarlet and fine linen and weavers, all of them skilled workers and designers. That's how God picked how to build his tabernacle. That was the temporary tabernacle too. That wasn't even the permanent one. When he gave instructions to David and to Solomon, it was extremely intricate, the type of craftsman, the type of skill, the type of excellence, the type of responsibility that God would use. Now look at Jesus. Jesus said this in Luke chapter 16, verse 10. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? Interesting. Jesus is connecting your ability to manage and handle and prioritize money. And this passage goes on to talk specifically about in regards to kingdom work and eternity and what you're doing with your wealth, 
in order, so your responsibility in work, your responsibility in business, your responsibility with your family, your responsibility with your finances, all of those are somehow connected to whether or not God can entrust you with true riches that are greater than anything you can experience in this earthly realm. So there's a level of exceptional character that God is searching for. Another passage says that the eyes of the Lord go to and fro all over the whole earth looking for someone who is fully committed to strengthen them. God isn't looking for scrubs. He's looking for excellent individuals who will be exceptional When we look at the story of the parable of the talents that Jesus taught, one guy was given five talents by the master, another guy given two talents by the master, another guy given one talent, and they were commanded to go multiply and invest and do business with those talents. A talent was a sum of money. It was a weight of money. It was a large sum of money, no small number. The guy that got one, it was actually around $10,000 was one talent. The other guy got 20,000. The other guy got 50,000. And then the the master said, now go and do business with that. Well, the guy that did five, he turned it into 10. Started a record label or something like that. I don't know what he did with it. Made hip hop beats, something like that. He turns it into 10 talents. He gets the well done, my good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with little. Now you'll be ruler over much. Come and share in your master's happiness. The guy with two talents turned it into four talents. Maybe he had a construction company or something. I don't know, but he multiplied his talent as well and did great things in business. Same instruction. Well done. My good and faithful servant, you've been faithful with little. Now you'll be ruler over much. Come and share in your master's happiness. But the last guy with one talent had a bad attitude. He had an attitude of entitlement. Oh, it's so prevalent in our day and age. Entitlement, ungratefulness. I deserve this. I'm comparing myself against them. Why do they get more? Why do I have less? What's the deal here? This isn't fair. Jesus addressed the same attitude we deal with in our everyday life right now. And he didn't say it was good. He said it was a bad thing. In fact, what he said to that man was, you wicked and lazy servant. I gave you this talent and you buried it and did nothing with it. So let me tell you what's gonna happen. I'm gonna take that talent and I'm gonna give it to the guy that has the most for whoever has will have even more and whoever does not have will have even less. And by the way, I'm gonna throw you out of the city, out of the family, you wicked servant, and you'll be out there suffering. You can have no place in my kingdom. That's how Jesus talked to that type of an attitude. Oh, but we tolerate it in our culture. And you know what? They're tolerating it in a lot of churches and it will not be tolerated here. That okay? Awkward pause. We serve a God who's incredibly generous. No matter where we've started, some of us grew up poor. I was in a middle class home that went through some troubles. And at 12, my dad had to file a bankruptcy and had a business partner that took advantage of him and left him in a horrible place with taxes and whatnot. And our family went through a very, very trying season. And as a 12-year-old, I had to figure some stuff out. And as a 14-year-old, I started working. And I 
got to pay for my own car and I got to pay for my own college and I got to do a lot of different things that I'm grateful for because it built and developed character in my life. But I didn't choose to develop character. I was forced to, right? Other people grew up different. They had access to everything. And, and, and life was different for them. And we can sit around and be jealous and complain or we can just go make the most of what we've got and go start kicking tail and taking names for Jesus because it doesn't matter. The guy with one talent could have turned it into two and then to four and then to eight and then to 16. He was only limited in his own mind with his own heart and bad attitude. We understand? So God's looking for champions. But he tends to pick humble champions. God picks people that are exceptional but somehow they don't quite know how great they are yet. You ever notice that? He picks people that have unbelievable character and talent and potential, but none of them are perfect. He picked Moses. Moses was an amazing leader. In fact, the Bible literally says that he was not an ordinary child. The Bible literally says that Moses was extraordinary. But what did Moses say about himself? I'm not a good speaker. I, 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 I have a speech impediment. I, I, I'm not good at this. Please pick somebody else. God picked David. David was a warrior. He was a worshiper. He had an incredible, the Bible, he's the only person that it says he had a heart after God's own heart. But David had issues. He had insecurities. He dealt with all kinds of problems in his family. Rejection from his father. Rejection from his brothers. Uh, Tradition teaches that they believed that he was an illegitimate child. And that's why they put him out with with the sheep. Because they were hoping that somehow the judgment of God would come. And an animal would tear him to pieces. But he kept killing lions and tigers and bears. Oh my. Because the spirit of the Lord was upon him. He was exceptional. But he had some character flaws. Isn't it amazing that God can use exceptional people even though they're flawed? The day you're perfect is the day you're in heaven. Congratulations, you're no longer on the earth. That's the day you're perfect. Until then, you need Jesus. We're all a work in progress. But he's given you gifts and talents and abilities. And he's called you to be excellent. Jacob. Man, he, 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 his name meant surplanter. He would take his brother's inheritance. He had some sneaky little things in his character, but my God, was he gifted. It says that he was a man about the tents and his brother was an outdoorsman. But what we see, some people thought the man about the tents meant that he was effeminate or something. Has nothing to do with that. This dude was not effeminate. He wrestled God into submission. He was a tough, tough dude. He was an incredibly powerful guy. But when it meant he was about the tents, he was about the business. And we see from Jacob, who would be named Israel, we see a, an anointing for business in our world today that has transcended every industry, every space. The children of Israel had a natural propensity for business and negotiations and doing things, but he also had some heart issues and some insecurities that God had to deal with him. He wasn't perfect, but he was absolutely exceptional. You can go through people like Esther in the Bible, who was picked, the, uh, the king came to town, and when the king came to town, there was a giant pageant for Miss Universe of the area and who's going to be the most beautiful person on the planet. And Esther was taken into that and was prepared for over a year, I believe 18 months or so, with every beauty treatment on the planet. The Kardashians would have been jealous of the beauty treatments that Esther went through. And because of her unbelievable beauty, 
God put her in a position to have influence to marry the king and to save her nation. But she had all types of insecurities and feeling like she was inadequate that she had to figure out how to overcome. God can do amazing things through you if you'll position yourself to be acceptable and exceptional and extraordinary. But what does this have to do with Mary and Joseph? What does this have to do with Christmas? What does this have to do with us? I think it has a lot to do with us. Because if the pattern all through the Bible was God picking incredible people that were flawed, but there was a reason he picked them, because there was something about them that was exceptional, then there has to be a reason for Mary and Joseph as well. And what I learned as I studied and researched is that there are a lot of misconceptions and misunderstandings about who Joseph was, about his level of success, about who Mary was and her level of success. What we know is that both of them, it says, were of the line and the lineage of David. They were both royalty. Generations down, you know, decades away, but they were all royalty. They came from royal families. They were both trained and very dedicated and devout believers and followers. You see in the story, as you see how they reacted and obeyed uh, the angel, there was no pushback. They had instant obedience. They had instant reverence. They had, a, they had a pious attitude, which means a reverence for God and an honor and a fear for the Lord. They responded instantly to obey God. But the conception or the idea that, these, that they were impoverished and poor and it would then potentially lend to the understanding that, they, that he was maybe a terrible business person or, or just not very good at business or not very good with money or not very good with whatever. Well, my question is, how is he then gonna handle, last week we talked about the Magi's gifts, just the gold, frankincense, and myrrh. If those gifts were given to a lowly king according to the Persian tradition, what the Magi would have, would have uh, brought to a low-level king would have been around 17 or $18 million if that was only the gift. Can, can, can you tell me what happens to a poor person that wins the lottery? They're poor again later. Am I right? Ruins them because they don't have the capacity to handle it. So how could God give Joseph and Mary the lottery ticket if they didn't have the capacity or the connections or the relationships to handle that? We're talking about a massive windfall. It instantly would have made their family one of the wealthiest families in the entire nation, just like that. So how could a low-level entry-level worker handle that type of responsibility? Well, the answer is that the idea of Joseph being a mere carpenter, now you have to remember when that was said of him, it was said by the uh, people that were offended at Jesus. They said, isn't this merely the carpenter's son? Isn't he the son of just the mere carpenter? It was said in a slur, but it wasn't the word carpenter. When it describes Jesus as, as a carpenter, as the son of a carpenter, it's not the word for carpenter. It's actually a mistranslation. The Greek word that's used is the word tekton. Tekton is a word that describes a master craftsman. A master craftsman. 
someone that is extremely skilled, someone that is like the verse that I read to you from Exodus chapter 35, when God picked someone to build his tabernacle, he picked the most excellent, highest level, skilled craftsman to build what he wanted to build to represent him. And when God picked Joseph, he wasn't picking a scrub, he was picking a tecton, and what was described as the tecton, as if he had some type of a reputation of being excellent in that field. See, Nazareth was a small little town, a smaller rocky town. Jennifer and I have been there. If you look right across the, the valley from Nazareth, there was another city there called Sephoris. Sephoris was the actual uh, big city. Nazareth was a small little country suburb. But a lot of the wealthy people from Sephoris would have kind of a country or a suburb type place in Nazareth. And that's where Mary and Joseph lived in Nazareth. But Sephoris was where all of the industry happened. It's where all of the work happened. So what you have in this city of Sephoris, in fact, I'm going to show you a couple of images, if we could throw a couple images up here. Sephoris was not, when we think of a carpenter, we're thinking about working with wood and whatever. Sephoris was actually a, a magnificent city that was built by Herod Antipas, which was Herod the Great's son, and he was on a mission to make this the most sophisticated city in the area. It was the hub of all of the banking. It was also a very strong Jewish religious hub. All of the most valuable scrolls were kept there. Once you see some of these mosaics all through, they have this beautiful artisan work, uh, these extravagant mosaics. Look at this. This is a mosaic... Can you see the zodiac symbols? There's Libra, there's Scorpio, there's Taurus. Interesting, with all the Judaism, watch this, watch this. This is where the Magi came who had been watching the stars, reading the stars. They come to Sephoris because the stars told them about a virgin that would give birth and a super king that would be born. The actual, all this stuff that has been perverted into different types of, I don't know, fortune telling or witchcraft types of things. It's just a perversion of what God actually made in the first place that he led people through uh, throughout the, the history and time to find that Jesus, the king of of kings has been born and it looks right there inside of Sephoris. This is the place you can see, look at the next one is the stadium uh, there. Uh, this was an amphitheater that was built. When, when you're talking about a tecton, this is what a tecton would build. You're talking about a highly skilled craftsman, a stone worker, a mason, someone that is doing at the highest level. They're building some of the most elaborate and beautiful things uh, as in part of that history. And what's really interesting is the exact same time that Jesus was born was the time that Herod Antipas was putting all of his effort into this city called Sephoris that would be the most, he wanted it to be the crown jewel of Galilee. He was the king over the whole region of Galilee and his mission was to make this this, the ornament of the whole region. And this is where Joseph actually worked as a high-level, successful builder. There's nowhere in Scripture that actually says they were poor. Did you know that? In fact, early Christian writers tell us who Jacob, or pardon me, pardon me, who Joseph's father was. It was a man named Jacob. And who Mary's parents were. The ancient stories that come from the first century depict a man um, and a woman who lived in Sephoris, they were a very wealthy family, and the man's name was Jehoiakim, and his wife's name was Anna. And Jehoiakim, they were a wealthy family. It was actually the brother of Joseph of Arimathea, you know that name, because he was the super wealthy man that gave his rich tomb to Jesus and bartered with Pontius Pilate to get the body of Jesus off so that he could give that. His friend Nicodemus gave 100 pounds of pure spikenard. Pure spikenard was the, um, was the 
the amount uh, or, or the type of, of um, ointment that was inside of the alabaster box that um, was broken over Jesus in anointing him. And that one pound of spikenard was worth one year's wages. Nicodemus was the one who came to Jesus in the nighttime, right? And that's where the whole uh, John chapter three uh, of, of, you know, that God wishes none to perish, but all to have eternal life. And whoever believes in the son of God would be redeemed and saved. That whole story, Nicodemus actually became a secret follower of Jesus. And at Jesus's death, remember that one alabaster box, one pound of pure spikenard was worth one year's wages. Nicodemus gave 100 pounds of spikenard to anoint Jesus's body after death. Jehoiakim was the keeper of the scrolls in Sephoris, which was the richest uh, region there in Galilee. And he was, had the most prominent job of taking care of the ancient Jewish scrolls that was the most prized thing in Jewish culture was their history and their, and their writings. They were the most accurate historians in the entire world and how they kept. In fact, the, the scroll writers in Israel, when they wrote, it was all by hand. If they made one wrong comma, one wrong period, one wrong tiny little slash, they had to scrap the entire scroll and start over. Everything was about the perfection in the scrolls. They were scribes. That was Jehoiakim. As the story goes, written in the first century, Jehoiakim and Anna couldn't have a child. They were praying, they were believing, very much like how Hannah and Elkanah prayed and God gave them Samuel, and they said they will dedicate Samuel. So they begin to pray, and all of a sudden in their old age, according to the early church historians, Anna becomes pregnant with a little girl and makes her dedication to God, that if you'll give me this baby girl, I'll raise her unto you. She'll be the handmaiden of the Lord. Well, the little girl was born and her name was Mary. And Mary from her childhood was raised and taught and trained that she would be the handmaiden of the Lord and that God would give her a special mission and a special calling. And they put her in a special school in Jerusalem and she was trained to be an expert in the scriptures. Now this is why this begins to make sense because when Mary goes and sees her sister Elizabeth and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit jumps inside of Elizabeth, well Elizabeth uh, is married to um, Zechariah who is the high priest um, in, in his area and Mary is the the cousin, they're related in relation. So Jehoiakim, he's, this, is a, this is a royal, holy, spiritual, priestly family. They're all interconnected. And they've been generationally connected down through David. And so now you see this coming to light where now you have a 15-year-old young lady who's been trained her entire life in the best education, the highest level schools in Jewish culture, learning the scrolls, learning the scriptures. And this is who Jesus picked, or this is who God picks to raise his son, an actual tecton who was not poor. He was from a, a, a royal family. Come on, you understand in this time frame, it, it wasn't like in America where everyone just follow your heart and just marry someone that just makes your heart pitter patter. No, these were arranged marriages. And the only way that Joseph could have married into an elite family like Mary's was if Joseph in his own right was a fit match. Does this make sense? And there was one question that bothered me because when they dedicated Jesus at the temple on the 40th day, they gave two turtle doves. And, and 
back in, in Leviticus and in Exodus where it, was, where it explains when you're dedicating a child, you would bring a lamb. And because the woman has been bleeding, she's ceremonially unclean, so you also bring a turtle dove. And the lamb is the love offering, and the turtle dove is the unclean, the sin offering, to pay for being unclean. It's a weird part of culture, but that was what was in the scriptures. And it says that if, for any reason, they couldn't bring, they were unable, if they were unable to bring a lamb, they could bring two turtle doves, one for a love offering and one for another, for, for the sin offering. Well, the actual translation in Greek or pardon me, in Hebrew, it literally just says, if they're unable, for whatever reason, there is no explanation, for whatever reason, if they're unable, then just bring two turtle doves. No big deal. Well, the bad translation was, in certain versions of the Bible, that are not the actual word-for-word -word translations, in the paraphrased version, they change it, and it actually says, if they were poor and they couldn't afford it. So now you have, for all of history, this idea that Mary and Joseph were poor, so they gave a poor person's offering to dedicate baby Jesus when the actual original language has nothing to do with finances whatsoever. It's a mistranslation. No different than this idea of tecton being he's just a mere carpenter, just a poor little carpenter and a poor little whatever they couldn't afford. Guys, it's just not the reality. And by the way, have you ever built a house? Um, my carpenter wasn't poor. And he certainly wasn't poor after I paid him. The carpenter that wanted to design my cabinets? You ever, you ever bought custom cabinets? He's like, come to my house. I want to show you my house. I want to show you my cabinets. I'd met him personally. And, and so I go to his house. One of, the, one of the richest neighborhoods in all of Frisco. It's like a two and a half million dollar home. He's walking me through showing me his cabinets. Jennifer's there getting eyes this big looking at these cabinets, and we're, it's beautiful, it's wonderful, it's, and then he gives us the bid. The cabinets for the new house, literally, including countertops, were two times more than the first house I ever bought. Cabinets! I could have bought two houses back in 1996 for the cabinets I was gonna pay for in 2000. Uh, 19 or whatever. Do you understand? I mean, this dude was not broke. He's doing very well for himself as a cabinet-making carpenter. What's the point? The point is God picked exceptional people that were trustworthy, that he knew could handle business. He knew they had the right people around them. He knew they had the right relationships. He knew they had the right training. Were they perfect? No, but they were quick to obey him. Guys, if I can tell you something about myself, I have lots of flaws. I'm not perfect, but I got one, I got one or two things I'm really, 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 really good at. Number one thing I'm really, really good at is I'm good at repenting. I'm fast at repenting, really fast at repenting. And the number two, I'm really good at getting right back into his presence. I have a really strong habit of being in the presence of God. And when I blow it, I have another habit of apologizing and repenting and getting right back into his presence. That's the secret for me. In January, we're going to start a new series. We're going to start a fast in January, January 7th, Sunday. The 7th, that Sunday, we're kicking off a new fast. And, and we're going to have a whole series on spiritual disciplines. I'm going to teach you the things the Lord has taught me over the last 30 years of my journey with him. 
on spiritual disciplines, how to hear his voice, how to understand the scriptures, how to dive deep in the word, spiritual disciplines that will change your life forever. You do want to miss this. You don't want to miss this at all. We're going to go on a spiritual journey together. We're going to have devotionals. We're going to have daily readings. We're going to have all kinds of stuff like that. So eat your little heart out right now because we're starving in January. We're fasting, all right? You gotta go on the journey with me. We're gonna make it hurt for Jesus. Come on, God is looking for exceptional people. Here's my question for you today. Why not you? Why not you? Oh, well, Joel, because this, or oh, because of that. Can I tell you that your excuses don't excuse you from God? God is looking. The, 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 the guy with the one talent, his excuses didn't excuse him. God still gave him a talent, still called him, still picked him. But what you do with what you've been given is a very important thing. Why not you? I don't want to stand before God and at the end of my life realize what I could have done and who I could have been. I want to push the envelope a little bit. I want to give more. I want to serve more. I want to sacrifice more. I want to do more. And listen, not so he'll love me more. Because he loves me so much, I want to do more. Because he's accepted me. I want to do more for him because I love him. I want to, it's not about earning his love. It's not about earning his approval. It's about expressing love back to the one who loved and accepted you first. Why not you? I, I, I know this is hard because we all go, well, I'm just this and I'm just that. And I remember um, the very first missions trip. I love mission trips. I'm so excited about the, the mission vision God's given us with this go and grow um, vision. I think there's probably somebody that would love to go on one of the missions trips. And certainly many of you would love to uh, give to that and affect you know, salvations all over the world. But I remember being on a mission trip in Nicaragua and I'd taken a group of kids down there with one of the other missions pastors and I think I had probably 30 or 40 kids and we're actually sleeping in the orphanage and it's, it's no windows. I mean, it is an open air orphanage. We had one of the buildings that was just for us and all the kids were sleeping in their other rooms and, and I'm talking, it was such a mind freak because the bugs, guys, the bugs in Central America are very different and we didn't have any nets. There were no windows so all night long you could feel them and it was just such a trip to be in this and, and, and the kids are freaking out. I mean, these are North Dallas kids that are being freaked out about these, this experience in this orphanage it, but by the end of it, they couldn't, they, they didn't want to leave. They didn't want to go to the hotel. They wanted to stay in the orphanage with the orphan. It was incredible, the transformation. But I remember what I was battling, what I was dealing with in my own heart that whole time on this trip, I was looking at the image of what I thought a great minister would be. I'm looking at these other great pastors and these other great leaders and these other great whatever. In my whole time there, I'm dealing with this incredible level of insecurity. And I'm in my own heart and mind, in my own prayers, I'm saying, and I'm even saying out loud, well, I'm just this, or I'm just that, and I'm not like this or I'm not like that. And I kept saying these things and I wasn't even really realizing what I was doing, but I was shortcutting what God wanted to do. I was undermining what God wanted to do. And I remember a moment where um, this missions pastor, Stephen, he said, hey, this little lady who worked at the orphanage, she wants to say something to you. She didn't speak a lick of English. I said, okay. He goes, she comes over and she starts literally prophesying over me, speaking over me in Spanish. I didn't understand a word he said, or she said, but Stephen began to translate and began to say what this little woman was saying. And she was saying to me, she couldn't understand anything that I'd said the whole week. She didn't know, she didn't know me from anybody. She worked in an orphanage in, in a little village in Nicaragua, just north up in the mountains from Managua. And she began to say, don't ever say you're just this 
or don't ever say you're just that because the same Holy Spirit that's in you is in those great people that you admire and those great people that you aspire to. The same Holy Spirit that's in you is in them and the same spirit that's in them is in you. The same anointing that they walk in is in you. It's the same thing. So stop, and I'm literally being corrected by this little Nicaraguan lady who doesn't know me from anybody because I'm over here arguing with the call of God in my life. Guys, I understand what it feels like to not feel good enough for what God is calling you into. I get that. But he's calling you anyway. He's calling you anyway. And you can look at your abilities and you can think that they're limited. But he's calling you for a reason. He's marked you for a reason. And I heard this said a long time ago, the most important ability when it comes to God is your availability. I hope you'll make yourself available to God. I believe with all my heart, he wants to do something incredible in you. And I, for one, I'm, I, for one, am stretching the envelope. I'm pushing, I'm pushing it to a new place. I'm having a different type of encounter with God in my own personal time. And the Lord is sharing with me very specific things to teach you all um, about how to encounter him at a higher level. I had an encounter with God this last week that was like nothing I've ever experienced in my life. It was literally like an out-of-body experience where I was almost, the, the Bible talks about how Peter was caught up in a trance and had this vision, had this encounter. I had a moment like that in my study this like week, sitting in front of a fireplace, just trying to journal. And all of a sudden, it was two hours later and I had no concept of time. And I had written 14 pages by the Holy Spirit, just writing, 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 writing. And, and literally the whole thing was almost like an out-of-body type experience. And the things, I had to go back and read. I didn't even know what I'd written. I'm, so, I'm telling you guys, God is calling us into a new season of prayer and worship and knowing him in consecration. And the promise that he's given to me and what I believe he's giving to you as well is that if we will dedicate ourselves and prioritize his presence while we are in his presence, just being with him, he will be doing things in our life. He will be out there doing things and working on our behalf, working to our advantage. While we're prioritizing him, he's prioritizing us. And we come out of that holy place and we walk in and I'm telling you the peace that I've walked in that the level of trust that I've walked in has been unbelievable because of this new thing God is saying that if I will focus my time in here he will focus his energy out there and he'll do the things in life see that's what we 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 we, we so as humans we're so wrapped up in all the doing and God has called us to be with him he's looking for exceptional people who will be excellent, who will put the work in where they need to, who will be sharp, but will prioritize his presence at the highest level. I'm curious if that resonates with anybody here today. Father, would you call us deeper? Our team's gonna lead us in a song. Father, would you call us deeper? If there's anybody in this room that needs to give yourself to God or give yourself back to God, this is your moment right now. Just give yourself to him. Just say a little, just a little prayer to yourself. Say, Father, I'm giving myself to you. I'm sorry for my mistakes. I repent. And I'm fully giving myself to you. I want more of you. I want to be exceptional. I want to be extraordinary. In Jesus' name. In 
Jesus' name. Come on, let's, let's stand for a moment. Let's just worship the Lord for just another moment.